Good morning. My name is Jeff Wyma, and uh, I'm a professor of New Testament at Calvin Theological Seminary for a long time now, for some 28 years. And uh, I'm uh, married. My wife, Grace, is with me. We've been married about 36 years. I hesitate only because it changes every year, you know. It's hard to keep track. So, uh, And we have four children, uh, three of whom are married. We have seven grandchildren who keep us busy and bring us great joy. I do a lot of other things, though, besides teach at Calvin Seminary. I lead biblical tours to Greece and to Turkey and to Italy and to Israel and to Jordan, done about 40 or so of those. I do a fair amount of public speaking, like I did yesterday. Sometimes do seminars for pastors, so we do one or two days and you know, we kind of allow them to steal a bunch of information and then run home to their church and turn it into a sermon series. And then another thing I do is, uh, I, is that I preach. And I preach a lot, but I've never preached at Faith Christian Reformed Church before. So I'm glad today that this terrible sin of mine will finally be uh, corrected. And I'm very happy to be with you uh, to talk about an important contemporary subject. I do talk about other things, but for various reasons, I've been asked uh, to think a lot with you this weekend about how we ought to act in terms of our human sexual behaviors. So our text tonight is, or this morning, is uh, from 1 Thessalonians, and I invite you to pull out your pew Bible and turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, and you'll find our text on page 1170, 1170, and Permit me to challenge you to pull that Bible open, not only now and to hear the text read, but to keep it open throughout the message, and that way you can always check with whether what you hear up front matches what you see on the pages of the Bible. If I were you, I wouldn't trust someone like me from Calvin Seminary, right? You want to have your Bibles open and test these things out for yourself. Before I read the text, I remind you of where these Christians lived, you can see it on the map, it's modern-day Greece, but there was a province called Macedonia in northern Greece, and Paul was there on his second missionary journey. He was there not very long, he got run out of town faster than he wanted, but after he left, he sent Timothy back in order to strengthen this congregation. And Timothy ministered among them for a while, and Paul, meanwhile, went on to Athens, and then he went on to Corinth. And then when Paul was pastoring in Corinth for a year and a half, Timothy from the north came south and gave Paul a report about the Jesus followers, the baby Jesus followers up there in the place called Thessaloniki or Thessalonica. And in response to this report from Timothy, Paul wrote the letter we're looking at this morning, 1 Thessalonians. So we're looking at, well, I have another slide just to show you where in the letter we're at. The letter falls into two halves. Chapters 1, 2, and 3 is the first half, and not surprisingly, then the second half is chapters 4 and 5. And in 4 and 5 is where Paul picks up the things that Timothy told him about. And the very first subject that Paul chooses to address when he hears about the church is the one we're looking at this morning. So that suggests to us that this topic of holiness in sexual conduct must have been an important subject, right, for the length with which Paul deals with it, with the rather strong language he uses to describe it, and the mere fact that he puts it 
the very first topic in this second half of the letter where he responds to the report of Timothy. So, with all of that in mind, I invite you to look at the text as we hear this portion of God's Word. 1 Thessalonians 4, verses 1 through 8. And it goes like this. Finally, brothers... We instructed you how to live in order to please God as, in fact, you are living. Now we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus to do this more and more. For you know what instructions we gave you by the authority of the Lord Jesus. It is God's will that you should be sanctified, that you should avoid sexual immorality, That each of you should learn to control his own body in a way that is holy and honorable, not in passionate lusts like the heathen who do not know God, and that in this matter no one should wrong his brother or take advantage of him. The Lord will punish people for all such sins as we already told you and warned you. For God did not call us to be impure, but to live a holy life. Therefore, he who rejects this instruction does not reject man, but God, who gives you his Holy Spirit. Friends, we live in a world that can be justly called a sex-saturated society. I don't say that happily or easily, but it's a glaring truth that you and I live in a world that can be characterized as a sex-saturated society. If you want evidence of it, you can see it simply by turning on your television screen. The Kaiser Family Foundation, this is a nonprofit organization, and they often report on contemporary issues. A number of years ago, they gave a report that said that almost 75% of things on TV, that's a pretty high number, involve some form of sexual content. And the sad truth is, this survey did not include a lot of more, we might call, racy cable channels, or even the premium channels that many, many people subscribe to. Now, television, of course, is just one small example. We also have Hollywood, the movie industry, and, you know, it's pretty hard to watch a movie that's not today at least PG-13. If you read the fine print, and we don't always do that, if you read the fine print, it'll say something like, contains some sexual situations, or contains some sexual humor, and You know, when you live in a sex-saturated society, when it's such a big part of the world you live in, well, you become a little dulled to these things. And, you know, it it shouldn't take this, but it kind of takes, like, mom visiting you, sitting on the couch, and you're watching a movie, and then suddenly you're like, you know, this ain't so good. Or you've got your daughters with you, it shouldn't take that, but then it suddenly this thing becomes more obvious to you that, This may not be the most appropriate material for followers of Jesus Christ. Well, when we turn away from the television screen and the movie screen, and we go to this third category, this is where things get even more problematic. Because whether it's your home computer and 
Well, even more convenient and potentially problematic is our smartphones. We have access to the World Wide Web almost no matter where we are, no matter what time of the day. We have access to online material that is, well, clearly inappropriate in, for followers of Jesus Christ. The stats, of course, are staggering. I could give you them in terms of like the percentage of internet searches that have to deal with sexual content or the number of people who are addicted, literally addicted to pornography. And how this is a problem, especially for men, but women too are not immune from this. I could talk about how pornography online is the second most profitable business online. You may wonder what's the most profitable, and that's online gambling, another problem we don't talk enough about in the church. But we could go on and on and on. But there's all kinds of ways in which attitudes towards members of the opposite sex, the objectification of women. I mean, there's a reason the Me Too movement has become a modern phenomenon. And a lot of it has to do with the all-too-easy access to sexual material online. And so I say this to you because I want you to realize that we do indeed live in a sex-saturated society. And this is a concern not just for the youngins. You know, sometimes we say, oh, we've got to have a sex sermon, you know, for the teenagers. Well, I want to tell you that... Um, Actually, at a very earlier age, our young boys and girls live in the same world that you and I do, and don't be so naive as to not realize that they too are impacted by it. The morning program, ABC, Good Morning America, they did a very, well, it wasn't a very scientific study, but it'll make the point that I want to make. They took a bunch of children with, of course, the parents' approval, 7 to 10 years old, and they put them in a booth one by one, and they showed them clips from modern sitcoms. They showed them music videos. They showed them comedy shows, and, and they asked very simple questions like, what were they singing about? What were they laughing about? And, and almost all the kids, without any hesitation, said, oh, they're talking about or joking about or singing about sex. So please don't think that this is a subject that is far too sensitive for young ears to hear in church this morning. And the same thing is true on the other end of the spectrum. Uh, there are all too many sad examples of people in middle age, people even in old age, who continue to struggle in this area of life. Just a little anecdote, uh, I, uh, anecdote. I, I, I was speaking a couple of years ago and I was at a church where they had people from Sunset Manor attending. You may not know where it is, but you can imagine Sunset Manor is like an old age home. And they had a nice little bus that took a whole bunch of people from Sunset Manor to the church I was preaching at. And anyway, an elderly lady came to me and spoke with great pain about the men in her building. The men in the building who were joking about women and the language they would use. And so we need to recognize that all of us live in a sex-saturated society, and all of us, from young to old, therefore face very strong challenges with now, how do we as followers of Jesus Christ live or ought to live in such a culture and society? Now, the Apostle Paul also lived in a sex-saturated society. 
Marriage, for instance, in the first century was not normally a love relationship, but an arranged marriage, usually between a man in his 20s and a girl in her teens. And so given the difference in age, given the fact that this was an arranged relationship, not a love relationship, it was actually expected that a man would have a sexual partner other than his wife. And in fact, grave inscriptions prove that this was true. Some man had this other relationship, this other sexual relationship with a woman different than his wife for a long, long time. And when that woman died, then the man wanted to honor the woman. And we can see that in grave inscriptions still that are around today. Prostitution is something that no one here this morning would want to be associated with in any way, but not so in the ancient world. There were very many leading and wealthy Roman citizens who made money off of not just women but men for sex, and there really was no shame or embarrassment about that fact. We have the so-called Julian Laws. So Caesar Augustus, you probably have heard of him, he ruled for a long, long time, and, and he was looking at the culture he was in charge of, and, and even from his point of view, this rather loosey-goosey attitude towards sexual relations outside of marriage was having a negative consequence on children and inheritance and things like that, and so he tried to pass these laws, and they're called the Julian Laws because Caesar Augustus named them after his adopted father, Julius Caesar. Now, they didn't work very well because it's hard to change people's behaviors by enacting laws, but the mere fact that Caesar Augustus wanted to change these laws proves the fact that, well, he must have lived in a sex-saturated society, or else why even make the attempt? The apostolic decree of Acts 15... You probably know about Acts 15 in terms of the first synod that took place, which, by the way, didn't happen at Calvin College in Grand Rapids or even at Trinity here in Chicago. The first synod, of course, was in Jerusalem, and, and most of us know that it had to do with a very serious issue, a tension between Jewish Christians and Gentile Christians. It had to do with circumcision. You know that already. But what you may not realize is that the leaders at that first synod also wrote a letter. Now, this actually ties into something I said last night, if you were around last night. But. So who was at the first synod in Jerusalem? Well, they were men, and they were Jewish men. They were Jewish Christians. And so these Jewish Christians were thinking about their Gentile Christians, and they made a very momentous decision for various reasons. They said circumcision, right? They do not need to be circumcised. That's a big decision, because circumcision is a sign of the covenant, but they said to themselves, naturally so, these Jewish Christians, they say, now, we don't want our Gentile brothers and sisters to get the wrong idea. Just because we made a concession on circumcision, we don't want them to think now that anything goes. And from a Jewish point of view, what are the anything goes? I said two of them last night. One is the sin of idolatry. That's what all Gentiles are guilty of. They worship all these pagan gods, unlike the God of the Bible, right? Here, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. But the other thing that we know that all Gentiles do, and which we better make sure they don't do, is they're guilty of, the Greek word is porneia, or sexual immorality. And so if you look up in Acts 15, you'll see this letter that the first sentence said to all the churches. And it said, don't do a bunch of things, and one of the things you shouldn't do is don't commit sexual immorality. Why? 
because the Jewish Christians knew that the Gentile Christians lived in a sex-saturated society where anything goes, and so they wanted to warn them. They wanted to encourage them about such conduct. Now, why am I talking about Paul living in a sex-saturated society? Well, because that means that the Thessalonians that we're looking at this morning, that means that that's the world they lived in. And it's also clear from 1 Thessalonians that the majority of this congregation was not Jewish Christian, but was Gentile Christian. So I hope you put one and one and two and two together. What this means is the majority of members in the Thessalonian church were not Christians all their life. They were just regular old pagans. And because they lived in a sex-saturated society where anything goes, that's how they not only thought, but that's how they lived, yes. But then Paul came in on the second missionary journey with his helpers, his fellow missionaries, Silas and Timothy, and they preached the gospel, and the Holy Spirit went to work. And the Holy Spirit took the gospel and implanted it in the hearts of these Gentile brothers and sisters, and what did they do? They went, wow, <laughs> right? What an amazing God, what an amazing Savior. And they not only went, wow, but they're like, whoa, I can't keep doing the things I've been doing all my life up to this point. I got to change. And so they changed in all kinds of areas, and, and they changed also in the area of their sexual conduct. And Paul recognizes that. Maybe you caught that at the beginning of our text. Paul says in verse 1, as in fact you are living, right? So they made positive gains, but now Paul says, we're writing you. Why? Because we want you to do so. Do you see the words? I hope you do. Don't trust me. I want you to hear them and see it in the word. Paul says, I want you to do it more and more. We have an expression in English, right? Old habits die hard. And so even among these former pagans who lived this way all their life, but then changed when they heard the gospel, changed when the Holy Spirit came into their hearts and their lives, lingering old habits die hard. And so Timothy told Paul about this when Paul was in Corinth. And so when Paul writes this letter, now in this passage, he's going to address the subject yet again. Because, yes, you've made changes, way to go, but we want you to do so more and more. Now, on any passage of Scripture, it's really not the best strategy. Just start on a verse and then just kind of march through the passage verse by verse. I mean, it's great to stick to the Bible, but... It's better to know that Paul has a plan, right? Paul has an outline in mind. I mean, Paul doesn't just start talking, you know, and then look at his watch and say, oh, I guess it's time to end. No, he's got a strategy in how he can most powerfully convey the will of God to these baby Christians in Thessalonica. And you can see that outline there on the screen before you. So I'm going to give you the outline, and then I'm going to walk through the text according to that outline. So I'll stand over here for the first point. 
I picked C words just so that we could maybe remember them a little more easily, even after the service. Paul begins with the claim of God's will over their life. So Paul, in the first part of verse 3, says, you know what, God's got a plan for you, right? This is God's will for your life. Okay, what is that? What is that claim about God's will for their life? And then after that, Paul follows it with one, two, three commands. Three specific things that they ought to do in order to carry out the will of God. Oh, and then he ends it with three causes. Three reasons why they ought to be holy in every aspect of their life, including their sexual conduct. So that's the outline or structure that Paul has, and I'd like to walk through the passage following that outline with you. So what that means is, I'll just stand over here, and we're talking about the first C, and we're going to talk about God's will for their life. And grab my Bible as you check. Some of you apparently trust me. I don't know why. I wouldn't do that, but anyway. I'm looking in my Bible, and I read this in verse 3, and it says, It is God's will that you should be sanctified. So how does Paul deal with the inappropriate conduct, the inappropriate sexual conduct of the baby Christians in Thessalonica? Paul doesn't have just a catchy phrase like, just say no. The Apostle Paul instead gives the Thessalonians a word, but not just any old word, a theologically weighty word. I can hardly hold it up. That's how heavy and important this word is. It's translated, you heard it just a minute ago, what's the will of God for your life? It says right here, that you be sanctified. That's not a bad translation. A more literal translation, that you be holy. Holy. And I want you to think this morning about the word holy. The sermon title is The Sanctity of Sex, so I could have said the holiness of sex, but then I lose the alliteration. But if you're keeping track, and I am, this is the first of no less than four references in this paragraph to that, that very heavy, theologically weighty word, sanctification or holiness. Now, the word holiness, the word holiness is a good word, and in fact, I dare suspect that many of you like the word, maybe even use it in your prayers, but like many good Christian words that we use, we don't really know. That's right, we use these nice words, you know, that Christians use, we don't really understand what they mean. And if you do that, if you're a little more precise, like where did this word holiness come from, you'll find out that it doesn't come from the secular world of Paul's day. It comes from the Old Testament. That's not surprising because Paul was a Jew. And he was a very conservative Jew who was trained and knew the Old Testament well. And so it's not at all surprising that Paul reaches into the Old Testament and he brings into this discussion this theologically weighty word called holy or holiness. Idea is behind this weighty word. Well, it's the idea that what? That holy things are things that are separated from 
the world. Things that are distinct or unique from the world. We have that a little bit in a couple of uh, key texts. This is an important text, Exodus 19. Just before the giving of the law on Mount Sinai, we read this. God, through Moses, says, You will be to me a distinctive people out of all the nations. You will be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. I want you to see the linking between holy nation and being what kind of people? A distinct people, right? So to be holy means you're not like everybody else. You're distinctive. You're different. A good old-fashioned word is peculiar, weird, strange. I mean, compared to everybody else, you're not like them. You're different. That's what it means to be holy. Here's another text that says exactly the same thing. From Leviticus, God says, Do not follow the practices of the nation I am driving out before you. I am the Lord who has what? Who has separated you from all the nations, and you will be holy. See the link between holiness and being separate. We keep going. Because I, the Lord your God, am holy, the one who separated you from all the nations to be mine. So when Paul talks to the Thessalonians, he says, guess what? God's got a will for your life. God's will for your life in in every area, but especially now in this topic of sexual conduct is, is that you be holy, that you be sanctified. And, And with that word comes all of this weight, this Old Testament theological weight of, that means that you're different from the sex saturated society that you come from, right? You don't have the same attitudes or the same practices from the rest of the world around you. In fact, when the world looks at you and your practice of sex, they're going to think that you're peculiar or weird. That's right. I just pause for a moment because I I just wonder whether the Jesus followers here at Faith are willing to be holy with regard to their sexual life. You say, oh yeah, I want to be holy. Well, I'm going to say, are you willing to be weird with regard to your sexual attitudes? Are you, are you willing to be considered peculiar by your friends, by your neighbors, by the world around you? We often talk about teen pressure, and there is a lot of pressure to conform, you know, to not be picked on or ridiculed, and, and, and no one likes that, but But actually, a Christian view of human sexuality is, frankly, quite different from the sex-saturated society in which we live in and which is negatively impacting us all the time. Paul comes along and says, God's got a will for your life, and His will for your life in every area, and now including sexual conduct, is that you're holy, that you're different, that you're set apart, that you're unique, that you're peculiar. Well, after giving this important claim of God's will for their life, Paul spells out what that means with one, two, three commands. Three specific ways in which the Thessalonians and we today can indeed be holy in our sexual conduct. So the first of these three is the shortest and the most general And it goes like this. Paul says, 
It's not a very long sentence. It's not very specific, but it's important. It's the first of the three commands. He says, quote, that you should avoid sexual immorality. Now, I want you to realize that the word avoid is pretty strong in the Greek language. Paul, in the original text, doesn't say something like merely uh, watch out for sexual immorality or, you know, uh, be careful about sexual immorality. I don't know, the word avoid maybe doesn't sound strong enough. Instead, Paul uses a verb, frankly, that echoes the idea of holiness. It has the idea of being separate from. Paul says, if porneo's over there, you have to be over here. Paul says, keep yourselves away from porneia as much as possible. That, that's the first of the three commands that Paul gives. And I want you to realize how countercultural this, this command is. Because remember, Paul lives in a sex-saturated society. The Thessalonians live in a sex-saturated society. It's not easy to keep yourself away from anything that involves porneia. It's not easy today either. How might you today avoid sexual immorality? I guess there are lots of possibilities. I mean, maybe we should think about that television and that movie and that internet stuff, right? I mean, what kind of controls can we put so that those things don't have the negative impact on us that they surely have? What can we do to keep ourselves away from some of that? What about our relationship with members of the opposite sex? Surely we ought to be friends with such people, but we have to be careful that our level of friendship doesn't reach a level of intimacy that ought to be reserved for that between husband and wife. I'm thinking about dress and apparel. Surely dress in a way that is flattering but don't dress in a way that flaunts your sexuality. Some of you are saying, that sounds weird. That sounds strange. I go, yep, that's right. I mean, you know, that's what it means, you know, to be holy in your sexual conduct. That means that you adopt attitudes and practices that are unique, that are different, that are distinctive from the prevailing attitudes of our culture and age. Well, the second command is um, a lot longer and it's complicated by a lot of things, which we can't all get into, but let's hear what the text says. The second command goes that each of you should learn to control their own body in a way that is holy. If you're keeping track of how many times holiness occurs in the word, and remember I am, this is number two. In a way that is holy and honorable, not in passionate lust like the heathen who do not know God. So the key idea here is that each of you should, and I hope you see it in your Bible, should learn to control their own body. In other words, we don't let our body just do what it might naturally want to do, right? We have to learn to control it. In other words, Paul would disagree with Time magazine. They had this rather infamous heading a number of years ago, right, that said, infidelity, it may be our 
genes. This is the idea that men in particular are genetically predisposed toward being unfaithful and sexually active. And although they don't always spell it out, it almost seems to justify sexual behavior, right? I mean, men are just being men, right? This is your excuse. I can't help myself. It's just my genes, not my Calvin Klein's, right? But my genetic genes. I can't help myself. I'm programmed to act this way. But Paul says, no, we have to learn to control our own bodies. Now, I'm not so naive as to recognize that this is hard. Some of us are genetically predisposed toward overeating. We just can't help ourselves, right? We start a little bit. We didn't intend to, but before we know, we're eating more and more. I mean, is it easy to control your desire to eat, yes or no? Obviously, it's not. I mean, otherwise, it wouldn't be all these different fads out there, right, trying to help you not to eat as much. So it's not easy, but, but you have to work at it. You have to learn to control your appetite. What about anger? I mean, some of us are, you know, seem to be hot-wired, right? I mean, it's like a trigger, boom. We go from normal to, like, raging bull, just like that. And it gets us into trouble because we say things we shouldn't and we do things we shouldn't. And uh, is it easy for such people to control their anger? The answer is, no, it's, of course not. But we, we just can't use that as an excuse. We have to work at it. We have to pray for it. We have to, we have to learn to develop self-control. And the same thing is true with our sexual desires. There's nothing inappropriate about our sexual desires, but how we act on those desires is another matter. We have to learn, Paul says, to develop self-control. Is it easy? The answer is no. Especially when you live in a sex-saturated society that's telling you go for it. But yet Paul holds this out not only as something that Christians can do, but Christians ought to do. They ought to develop self-control. Well, the third command is also specific. It's found in verse eight and it go, 6, and it goes like this, that in this matter no one should wrong their brother or take advantage of him. If I think about the difference between command number two and command number three, command number two seems to deal with yourself, and command number three seems to deal with other people. Because the truth is, how we act sexually does impact other people. It's not just impacting you, which is significant. It always impacts other people, too. So if you have sex with someone that's not your spouse... If you're married, your spouse is impacted. If the other person is married, their spouse is impacted. If they've got kids, they're impacted. And some of us know these sad situations where actually it's the, it's the family members who almost have a more painful consequence than the people engaged in the act. But you know, you can abuse another person even within the confines of marriage. If one marriage partner... I'm going to say uses or abuses their spouse simply to satisfy their sexual desires. That's not a true act of love. That's not demonstrating genuine care and compassion for the other person. You can also harm another person in that context too. 
And so Paul's challenge to the Thessalonians of old is equally the challenge for us today. That we're called in our sex-saturated society to live what kind of life? A holy life. In every area of life, but in this matter in particular, in developing self-control and making sure that we don't harm others. Well, we've looked at the claim, the call to holiness. We've seen how Paul has kind of fleshed out that claim in three specific commands. And he ends the passage with three causes, three reasons why the Thessalonians and we today ought to be holy in every area of life, including our sexual conduct. And although Paul isn't teaching this, right? So don't mishear me. He's not teaching it. It may be helpful for you to understand what he's saying to realize that Paul actually, in each of these three reasons, refers to the different three persons of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And in these three reasons, he has a different time frame, past, present, or future, right? So as we think about these three causes, we think about which person of the Trinity is is foregrounded, is emphasized, and what time frame are we talking about? So the first cause focuses on Christ, and it deals with the future. It deals with the return of Jesus. This actually isn't surprising if you know anything about Thessalonians, because in the very next passage, chapter 4, 13 to 18, you can see the heading, the coming of the Lord. And if you look at 5, 1 to 11, Paul also deals with the second coming of Jesus. The Thessalonians had some questions about What would happen to them and their loved ones when Jesus came again? And so it's a big theme in the letter. And so here too, Paul talks about the second coming of Jesus. And he does so, if you're following along, and I hope you are, in the middle of verse 6. The Lord, actually the NIV omits the reason, because, that's an important word in the Greek, because the Lord will punish people for all such sins as we have already told you and warned you. So what's the first reason why we ought to be holy in our sexual conduct? Because one day Jesus Christ is coming back and he will punish people for their sins. Doesn't sound very encouraging, does it? It's true that most often when the New Testament talks about the second coming of Jesus, it leads toward comfort. Because Christians are excited, they're comforted that one day life in this pain-filled world will be changed. The dead will rise, the living will be transformed, and life will be restored to its former glory. That's the wonderful promise of the gospel, and it's found in Thessalonians too. But we have that old hymn, you know, day of wonders, but also day of judgment. That's right. And Thessalonians knows that when Jesus comes, it's going to be a day of wonders, but also a day of judgment. It doesn't sound very politically correct, does it? Even in church. Most people don't like the idea of a judging Jesus. They only like a a Sunday school Jesus, you know. He's got kids all around his lap. He's got lambs running around. You know, that's the Jesus I like, isn't it? But the scriptures are quite clear that he's the Lord of lords and the King of kings, and he's coming back in glory to judge the living and the dead. 
But there's an important aspect about this that I don't want you to miss. It's lost a little bit in the English translation. But there's the idea of Jesus coming back to do what? Not just to judge, that's maybe too negative. But Jesus is coming back, the text says, to, it, to exact justice. Think about that for a minute, justice. Aren't you frustrated that there doesn't seem to be justice in this world? Think about sexual sins. Aren't you crying out for justice to be done? When a woman is violently raped by someone, when a child is sexually abused by someone, when someone in Cleveland kidnaps one, two, three women and uses them as their sex slave, isn't there a burning desire for justice? And this text says that on the day of Jesus Christ's glorious return, Jesus the judge will come and he will take what is wrong and make it right. And although we don't delight in the just judgment of others, there is indeed, brothers and sisters, something encouraging, something comforting, something important to know that when Jesus comes, he will bring about true justice. You may not get justice in this life if somebody has hurt or abused you sexually. But Jesus, the just judge, knows your situation. When we move on to the second cause, and this one focuses on God the Father, and it's the past. We read in verse 7, For God did not call us to be impure, but to live a third time, if you're counting, to live a holy life. Here Paul is clearly talking about how God has called the Thessalonians out of the, an impure life and into a holy life. I, I hope I don't have to spend much time, which I realize now I don't have, right, in a Christian Reformed church talking about how God is a God who calls people. In fact, throughout this letter, Paul always mentions how God has been actively at work in the Thessalonians' life. And here he reminds them that God called them not to live any old life, but to live a holy life. That's God's call for you and for me. When we get to the third one, it's, which is the one that I, I want you to get most excited about, because it deals with the present and it deals with the Holy Spirit. We read this in verse 8. Therefore, the one who rejects this instruction does not reject man, but God. And then what kind of God? God who gives you his, are you keeping track? Actually, Paul doesn't say God who gives his Holy Spirit. The Greek text says God who gives his spirit who is holy. You say, what's the difference? There is a difference. Our text has holy as a name. They put a capital. But the Apostle Paul highlights the Spirit as not just any old Spirit, but a Spirit who is holy. Paul says the reason you and I can live a holy life is not because we're so talented, is not because we're so hardworking and committed to it. No, the only reason we can live a holy life is because we don't have any old Spirit living within us. We have a Holy Spirit. And it's the Holy Spirit that empowers you and me to do what? Well to die to our sinful ways. Addiction to pornography, 
inappropriate language of members of the opposite sex, abusing a spouse for satisfying her own sexual needs, whatever it may be, our sin. The Holy Spirit has more than enough power for us to overcome that sin and to live the holy life that God has always called His covenant people to lead. There's a hymn that we sometimes sing, right? Spirit divine, inspire our prayer and make our hearts your home. Descend with all your gracious, there's the word I wanted to highlight, power. Come, Holy Spirit, come. Brothers and sisters, that's the good news of the gospel I bring you today. You're not doomed to perpetual failure. You're not stuck forever in your sinful sexual ways. You have power, not in yourself, but divine power and the person and work of the Holy Spirit to live the holy life to which God has called you. I know, I'm almost done. I'm a little bit nervous at this point, and not so much about the time, but I'm a little bit nervous that you're listening to me this morning, and you're kind of rolling your eyes and say, here it comes, the same old sex sermon that every pastor have. It's a three-point sermon. You already know how it goes. Point one is no, point two is no, and point three is no, but with an exclamation mark. Mm. I mean, Christians have this stereotype of being prudes when it comes to sexuality, right? Sometimes Paul might be accused of being some kind of first century killjoy who's preventing us from simply having fun and experiencing all these wonderful things that everyone else is experiencing. And that's why it's really important for us to look at 1 Thessalonians 4, 1 to 8, in light of the whole of the Bible, in light of all of God's revelation. And when we do that, especially when we go back to the beginning of creation, we need to recognize that sex is actually one of God's good creational gifts. There's nothing dirty or inappropriate about sex. God's the one who created us, as the Bible stresses, male and female. And so I'm going to choose my words carefully, as I ought to, whenever you say something important. And that is this, sex between a husband and a wife, all of these terms are important, within the confines of marriage is a good and wonderful thing for which we can and ought to give thanks. I'll say it again. Sex between a husband and wife within the confines, maybe even we say the covenant confines of marriage, is a good and wonderful thing for which we ought to give thanks. If I wanted to wake up the believers at faith, I could say, God loves good sex. We can't disagree with that. You might not like it, but you can't disagree with it. Now, unfortunately, there's a but coming. And the but comes because we live in a fallen world. And so sex, like God's other good creational gifts, in a fallen world can be abused. And, and, and that should be painfully obvious. Painfully obvious in how sex is abused, right? How women are objectified in assaults, sexual assaults of one kind or another. 
in skyrocketing rates of sexual diseases. I mean, they're so high now that we have commercials in prime time, right, for medicine to address these sexually transmitted diseases, these STDs. So there's all kinds of pain and suffering surrounding this good creational gift. And in the midst of all of this mess and chaos, God's got a word. He's got a word for you, and the word is not no. The word is something else. You should know the word now. The word is holiness. God says, when it comes to sex, I don't want you to be like the rest of the world, like the rest of the culture. I want you to be like me. You are to be holy as I am holy. And what's more, I've given you my Holy Spirit so that you can overcome your sin and be the kind of holy people that I have called you to be. And so I end with this interesting quote from Chuck Colson. He says, Alien and archaic as the idea may seem, the task of the church is not to make men and women happy, it is to make men and women holy. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word, which is every bit as true and relevant for us Jesus followers today as it was for the Christians in northern Greece and Macedonia in the year 51 A.D. We pray that these were, well, we pray that the same spirit that inspired Paul to write these words will now work in each of our hearts so that we may not just hear, but also heed these words. May we hear again in clear and unmistakable ways the call to holiness that you have given us, your covenant people. And may we be encouraged, O God, with the good news of the gospel, that we're not doomed to perpetual failure, but that you have equipped us with the gift of the Spirit who will indeed enable us to die more and more to our sinful self and more and more be born again into that new holy creature that you desire us to be. And so we pray that your Holy Spirit will be at work in each one of us, individually and as a congregation and as a denomination, as we seek to be a clear witness to the world of who you are and how you have worked in our hearts and our lives through the person of Christ and through the work of the Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.